Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Today, we're wrapping up our series in the Song of Solomon. And like the previous messages, this, this will have some moments of some PG-13 material, and, but I'm excited to wrap up this message. We've been looking at this book through the lens of Solomon, likely later in his life, sort of writing a beautiful love story of what he wishes his own life might have looked like. This, uh, in some ways, sort of a song of confession and repentance. And we see these snapshots of this couple and various moments of their relationship. We began by looking at attraction and then dating, and and then we have this snapshot of this honeymoon night, and then last week we looked at conflict, talked about how how do we fight fair in our relationships? How do we deal with conflict well? And today we're gonna see a snapshot in these last two chapters of this book, a snapshot of a couple uh, later in marriage. And so talking today about how do we, how do we finish strong? How, how do we keep the, the flame alive in our marriages? And, and here's the thing. Uh, if we're not careful, what can happen in our marriages is it's easy to put our marriages on autopilot. It's easy for marriage to get stale, and it's easy for it to get boring, and it's easy for it to get difficult. It's easy to fall into the trap of simply being roommates or simply being co-parents, and, and, and maybe that's where you find yourselves. Even, even maybe you just see a little bit of that, and, and, and maybe it's tough to remember the last time that, that you and your spouse actually had fun together. Maybe it's tough to remember the last time you both just really laughed together. Maybe it's hard to remember the last time you kissed each other with any real passion. And, and, and if that's the case, maybe you have fallen into that trap, or maybe you're in, in danger of falling into that trap of just getting into a rut in your marriage. But I want you to know that you don't have to stay there. That, that I would say that most, if not all marriages, that, that, that go for any amount of time, Claire and I are going on 26 years, most, if not every marriage, will have moments where you begin to go that path of just autopilot and living as roommates and where all the busyness of life and career and children begin to take over. And, 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 but I want you to know that if, if you're careful, if, if, you, if you're aware of that possibility, that it doesn't have to stay that way, that you can see yourself going that direction and then you can begin to course correct. And so I'm excited for us to look at this couple today. And, and part of what I love about how the Song of Solomon ends As we've talked through this series, how marriage is meant to be a picture or a shadow of of God's love for us in Christ. And I believe these last two chapters, we see some of that the most clearly. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, we're going to be in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. There's There's about nine people that didn't get the text that were online only today. They're here, and and you guys are awesome. Song of Solomon, chapter 7 and verse 1, Solomon says, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Uh, Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is, and this is some fascinating pictures as Solomon loves to do, your waist is a mound of wheat 
and circled by lilies. I think the lilies part feels good, the mound of wheat, I don't know. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrobim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. Now what we see, as we've seen through uh, this um, book, is, is at the beginning of the book, when, when Solomon is describing this woman he's attracted to, he begins by describing her beginning with her head and working his way down. Now he's looking at her as after a period of time, some years have gone by, he's looking at her through this different lens. Now he is describing her from her feet up. And, and what we see is that Solomon is going to describe some things about his bride that, that only he knows. And what we see is this principle, if, if we're going to allow our marriages to continue to get better with time, like a fine wine, if you will, one, one big step is to grow in the knowledge of your mate. And what we see is he, he's describing things about her that only he knows. He, he's, he's talking uh, about the, her, her thighs. He's talking about her navel. He's talking about, that, about things that only he would have this intimate knowledge of in, in ways that he did not use that same language at the beginning when they were in that attraction and that dating phase. He knows her better than he's ever known her, and he knows her better than anyone else possibly could. And so this idea that the longer we're together, we want to we want to be students of, of, of learning what our spouse is all about. And, and really what the, what the idea is this. Marriage at its best is the joy of being fully known and fully loved. See, no one knows what I can be like on my worst day better than Claire. No one knows my capacity for selfishness, grumpiness, or other negative traits better than Claire. She gets an up-close look. But at the same time, no one loves me more than Claire does. And really, that's this idea of what marriage can be at its very best, is that no one knows you better. No one knows the great parts of you more. No one knows the special good parts of you more, but no one knows your weaknesses better. No one has seen you be more sinful than this person, but at the same time, they know you better, but they love you more. And in this, marriage becomes this picture of God's relationship with us and that, 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 that no one knows you better than God. He knows the worst thought that you've had this week, this month, this year. He knows the worst words you said at any point in your life. He knows the thing you regret the most. He knows your greatest fears. No one knows you more than God. And at the same time, no one loves you more than God. And so marriage at its best, as we grow in the knowledge of our mates, where, where no one knows us the way they know us, no one knows them the way we know them, but at the same time, no one loves us more. No, we love no one more. It's this picture of God and that he knows us fully and that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. This, and there's this thing inside all of us that longs to be fully known and fully loved, and that's what marriage is at its best. It's the kind of love God has for you, loving you unconditionally, 
knowing you completely. Let's keep reading verse 8. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. It's this incredible picture here, and what we, we see here, there's this, they, they are, are still passionately in love, and so as, as, as a marriage continues, we want to be intentional to keep the romance fresh. See, here's the thing, Ro- passionate marriages are so, by, remain this way by design and intent. Early on in a relationship, passion just happens. Passion is, it, it's just, no one's looking for it, no one's trying, needs to cultivate it, it can just happen. But if you're gonna have a marriage that goes 30, 40, 50 years, and you're going to keep the romance fresh, it's going to require intentionality. Romance is a discipline. But unfortunately, a great many marriages, that, that fades more and more as, as every year goes by and then careers take over, kids get happen. And uh, Josh McDowell once reported the results of a survey of high school students in which 90% of the students could not imagine that their parents even still had sex. It's, it's the idea that, that, that their relationship seems so platonic, their relationship seemed more like co-parents than it does like lovers, and that as their kids looked on, they just thought, I, I don't even think they, they we've got a, I've got a couple of siblings, so I guess they did that three times over the years, but I think it's been a while. And obviously, it's, you don't ever want your kids overthinking your sex life, super, super creepy stuff. But, but those that look on the outside ought to see that there is still fire burning in this relationship. But this does not just happen, but it is happening here for this couple. And we see a, a few principles here. Uh, we see that if, if, if we're going to be intentional to keep the romance fresh, what a principle is this, get away together regularly. We see here in verse 11, come my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let's get away from all these people. Let's get away from all of the stresses of life. Let's get away from our responsibilities. Let's get away. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. As there's this desire. Let's get to where it's just you and me, where we can have a long romantic dinner, where, where we can go to a hotel and we can sleep in in the morning and no one's going to bother us. And it's just us the way it used to be. And this principle of getting away together regularly, getting away keeps life from just becoming about career and household responsibilities and kids. So Claire and I have just a routine that we seek to be in that we're actually pretty, pretty disciplined to maintain. And that our goal is, is that once a week, that we'll have three or four hours that's just her and I together focused on one another. So we, we try to have a date once a week. Most weeks we accomplish it. Try to have a, we try to date weekly, 
We try to have an overnight away from our kids at, at least quarterly. So once a quarter, we'll see if there's a deal at the pepper mill or somewhere, or we can go there for 60 bucks or whatever. And, and so once a quarter, we try to have an overnight, just her and I away from the kids. And then annually, we try to get away for a number of days, away from responsibilities and kids, just us. And, and those times, whether it's the weekly time or the quarterly time or the annual time, I believe are, are, are one of the things that, that, that has helped Claire and I over nearly 26 years, most of the time, have a really, really great marriage. And it's easy to say, well, I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to go on a date once a week. I can't afford to go to the pepper mill once a quarter. I can't. And, and here's what I'd tell you. you. You probably can't afford not to. You know what's expensive? Is divorce. Everybody gets poorer in divorce. Talked to a good buddy of mine this week, coming out of a divorce. His attorneys cost him $50,000. It's one of the greatest dates Claire and I ever had. It was one of the cheapest. It was our 10th anniversary. Uh, it was a moment where we had less uh, positive cash, freedom, discretionary income than other seasons. We found ourselves, it was our 10th anniversary. We went up to that beach at Incline Village after the security had left. I think they leave around 7.30 or 8 is what they used to do. We went to Quiznos, got a foot-long sandwich, went and sat on that beach at, at Incline Village and just talked about the greatest moments of the previous 10 years. It's one of the cheapest dates we ever had, one of the best dates that we ever had. And so what we see with this couple is their intentionality to keep the romance fresh, even as the relationship continued. They got away regularly. We see this next principle. Don't let your sex life get old and stale. Look here, verse 12. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The way I read that is they're saying, hey, let's, let's get out to that garden before anyone else has gotten there. And we're going to have sex outside. If there was a crowd full of people, hopefully y'all would laugh. I don't know. It's super awkward preaching about this to an audience, even more awkward just to a camera. <laughs> but she says, let's get there early, and there I will give you my love. The mandrakes sent out their fragrance, and at the doors, every delicacy, look here, both new and old. I have these delicacies, new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. So what we see is, is, is they're saying, hey, we're going to have this time. We're going to go do this. And, and hey, we're, and, and we're going to trick it up a little. We're going to keep it fresh. We've got some new stuff and, and some old stuff that I have stored up for you. Let's, here, the principle is this. It's, it's your sex life can keep getting better and better well into midlife. See, contrary to the popular belief that married sex is boring and infrequent, married people report higher levels of sexual satisfaction than sexually active singles and cohabitating couples. According to a giant comprehensive survey, get this, 42% of wives said they found their sex emotionally and physically satisfying, compared to just 31% of single women who had a sex partner. 48% of husbands said sex was satisfying emotionally, compared to just 37% of cohabitating men. 
The higher level of commitment in marriage is probably the reason for a higher level of reported satisfaction. And so we see this couple later in life. It's, they've been together for some time, but they're still looking for opportunities to keep things exciting and fresh. And, 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 they, and we see here, they're, 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 still, they're still so uh, in love that, that they wish they could express it with even publicly. We see this thing at chapter 8, verse 1. Kind of, if you initially read it, it reads strangely, but if you had to unpack it, it makes sense. We see here, chapter 8, verse 1. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts. Then if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. She who, so here's the thing. She says, I wish you were to me like a brother. Well, what does that even mean? This is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Well, so in the ancient world, in this Middle Eastern culture, a, a woman, the only, only um, person, only male that a woman was allowed to um, touch at all in any sort of physical way, hug or hold a hand, would, would have been a, her, her father or her brother. For a husband and wife to be seen touching one another publicly in, a, in, the, in the view of others would have been, been seen as, as highly inappropriate. And so what she's saying is, hey, we're outside and there's a crowd and I'm having to, I'm having to, to do what is seemingly appropriate for the moment, but more than anything, I, I wish that, that, I, uh, that we could, could have a little PDA right here is sort of what she is saying. And so if we're going to have a marriage that continues to get better, for the long haul. We've got to the third thing is consider our legacy. We see here chapter 4. The, the lady says, daughters of Jerusalem. She's, she's talking to these younger ladies who are not yet um, married. I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And so she's talking to this younger generation about the appropriate way to encounter uh, a, a romantic relationships. And then we see here verse 8. The friends are saying, kind of this chorus of these ladies, we, we have a little sister and her breasts are not yet grown. Hey, what is this strange verse saying? They're saying, hey, there's this, there's, we're talking about this younger generation, talking about this younger person. What shall we do for our sister on the day he is, she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose it with her panels of cedar. What we see is this principle is that your relationship is not just about you. And your relationship is not just about you and your spouse. There's this kind of looking at the next generation coming up that are watching this couple and their relationship. And there's questions coming up about, well, how do we handle relationships? And how did you? And, and what we see is this whole idea of a generational legacy. Your relationship is not just about you and your spouse. That, that, that every one of us, in every area of our life, but I would say specifically in the context of our marriages, those of us that are married, we we must realize it that whether we like it or not or realize it or not, we are setting an example to another generation. We're setting an example to our kids, to our nieces, our nephews, to uh, our, our friends' kids. We're setting, our, we're setting this example to another generation of, of either a model of what healthy relationships and a healthy God-honoring marriage looks like, or we're setting an example of dysfunction and, and of unhealthy relationships. And so we must always recognize that our relationship is not just about us, but that we are setting an example and that there is a legacy. And I would just tell you this, those of you that are married and those of you that have kids, that, that one of the greatest gifts, 
more than any money that you might leave them one day, more than, any, more than even sending them to a, a tremendous college, the, one of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is an example of what a healthy, Christ-centered marriage looks like. This is one of the greatest gifts that you can live. It's, and, it, and it becomes this encouragement to others. Your kids, so many of your kids have friends who have no other example of what does a good marriage look like, and you can even provide that for them. And, and, and it's this generational impact. And Landers received a letter. It says this. It's from this lady. She says, Last weekend, we celebrated my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. This morning, they left on a long-awaited trip to Hawaii. They were as excited as if it were their honeymoon after 50 years. You see, when my parents married, they had only enough money for a three-day trip 50 miles from home. And they made a pact that each time they made love, they would put a dollar in a special metal box and they would save it for a honeymoon in Hawaii for their 50th anniversary. Dad was a policeman and mom was a school teacher and raising five children was a challenge. And sometimes money was short, but no matter what emergency came up, dad would not let mom take any money out of the Hawaii account. My parents were always very much in love. I can remember dad coming home and telling mom, I have a dollar in my pocket. And she would smile at him and reply, I know just how to spend it. And when each of us children married, mom and dad gave each of us a small metal box. And they told us their secret, which we found inspiring. Mom and dad never told us how much money they managed to save. But it must have been considerable because when they cashed in those CDs, they had enough for airfare to Hawaii, plus hotel accommodations for 10 days, and plenty of spending money. And before they boarded the plane, Dad winked at us and said, tonight, we're starting an account for Cancun. See, this, what we see is this beautiful picture that this husband and wife that had loved each other well for 50 years, their kids were watching the whole time. And it became this incredible inspiration. And here's the final point, and we're done. If we're going to have a, a marriage that keeps getting better with time, kind of like a fine wine, we, we have to have this commitment to cultivate a fierce, forever kind of love. Let me show you this, chapter 8, verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire. These are just powerful word pictures here. Like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for you, it would be utterly scorned. Man, this powerful picture here of this, this description of this fierce forever kind of love, comparing love to a fire that cannot be quenched, comparing love to, to, the, to the mighty waters rushing, comparing love to something that, that, that no amount of money could, could be worth more than the love that they share together. It's this powerful language saying, I am all in on this. I am all in for the long haul. The word here used for love is this word, ahava, 
It's this clinging kind of love. It's this I'm not going anywhere kind of love. It's this I'm all in for the long haul kind of love. And, and this phrase here, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. The, the ancient world seals were a very powerful uh, image. It's, there was a, a, a person would have a seal. It was a mark of their identity. It was a mark of their authority. When, and we see in the Old Testament in Genesis 38, when, when, when Tamar asked Judah, there'd been this terrible situation that had gone down and Judah wasn't taking responsibility. Tamar asked for his seal uh, as, as that, that there'd be no dispute that he was the father of his child. It was this mark of identity in the ancient world. Governments would use the seal of the king or the seal of the empire as, as, as a sign of authority. If a seal was placed on a document, it was a way of saying, this is, this is authentic. This, this is bringing all of the weight and the authority and the power of the king or the empire. We even see our president. When he speaks from the White House, there's a podium and it's the seal of the president of the United States. There's so much imagery here. And what she says, and she says, I want you to place your seal on my heart. And I want you to place your seal on my arm, this, this, this mark of, of, of I am yours and you are mine. And I want it on my heart where I know it and you know it. And I want it on my arm. I want the whole world to know it, that, that we're together, good and bad, thick and thin, richer, poorer, sickness and health, that, that you are mine and I am yours. And I can't help but when I read this passage talking about this seal for my mind to go to in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 where Paul is talking about our salvation. And he says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's this, she says, I want your seal on my heart, that seal that says, I'm yours and you're mine, you're mine forever. I want it on my arm. And then Paul says, hey, when you trusted in the gospel, you were given a seal better than any seal possible, the seal of the Holy Spirit, saying that you belong to Jesus forever and ever and ever. And, I, and then the other thing we see here in this fierce forever love, it's this, it's this, this love that says only death will separate us. She says, love is as strong as death. She says, I'm going to be with you forever in this life. Nothing in this life will separate us. We're not going to let any in-laws separate us. We're not going to let any friends that aren't cheering on our relationship to separate us. We're not going to let money trouble separate us. We're not going to let the challenges of raising kids separate us. We're all in on this, this ahava, I'm all in kind of love. And she says, it's, love is as strong as death. The only thing that's going to end this relationship is when one of us dies. It's not going to be threatened by fire. It's not going to be threatened by, by flood. We're all in on this. It's this forcefulness. I'm all in. And, and I, when I think about that phrase where she's saying, hey, this, this love is as strong as death, it makes me think uh, about the love that we're told is even stronger than death. 
We see here in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what we see here is she's saying, hey, this love we had, the only thing that can threaten it is death. I'm with you for the rest of my life, for the rest of your life. And, and what we see is this, this picture, this type, this shadow. It's a picture of an even greater love, the love that God has for us in Christ that says even death cannot separate us. Even angels or demons or anything in this life or any other life, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ the kind of love that Jesus has for us. It's this all in, forever, never giving up, I'm going to love you till the end kind of love. And it's the kind of love that in a healthy Christ-centered marriage just continues to grow, where we just continue to know one another better and love each other more and intentionally flame the, 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 the fires of romance, prioritizing the relationship, times that we get away, times that we, we just dedicate to loving one another well with this whole idea of this fierce forever love that says, I'm with you in the good days and I'm with you in the bad days. And I'm with you when we got lots of cash. And I'm with you when, when we're just eating beans and rice. And, and I'm with you in sickness, and I'm with you in health. This fierce, forever love that can continue to grow and grow and grow. And as great as it becomes, and it can be amazing, there's an even greater love, the love that God has for us in Christ, the love that God proved for us once and for all, and Christ dying in our place. Let me pray for you. you know, maybe you've been married a while. And maybe you see some signs of some of this threat of monotony and sameness and responsibilities and stress and routine. You see how you see little signs. Maybe it's, maybe it's a lot or maybe it's just a little, but, but maybe even today you've just had this reminder or maybe first time understanding that, that it doesn't have to keep going that way. That, that you can, with God's help, be intentional to take steps towards loving one another well, towards steps of the longer you're together, the more that you love one another, steps towards prioritizing the relationship. And, and maybe, for, maybe for some of you, you say, you know what, it's, I don't even know if we can do that. And I'd encourage you to, for sure, reach out, whether that's a professional therapist, we can help you find one, whether one of the folks in our staff that loves to do pastoral care with couples, we can help connect you there. But, but I think for a lot of us, we go a long way just to look at our spouse and just say, you know, and however long it's been, whether it's been five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, it's been 40 years. 
And I'm more committed to this relationship than I've ever been. And I'm more committed to learning to love you better and better and better than I've ever been. And I'm more committed to us establishing practices that we practice on a regular basis to prioritize this relationship than I've ever been. And I want our relationship a month from now to be better than it is today, and a year from now to be better than it is today, and 10 years from now to be better than it's ever been. And then to begin to act on those commitments. For a lot of you, that would be a great step. Others of you, maybe you need to take a step of, of getting someone to come alongside and help you, and we'd love to help you do that. And so, Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we remind ourselves, we remember that marriage at its very, very best with you at the center can be this picture, this shadow of a far greater love, the love that you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.